Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Johnocrypha, where we're exploring the unproduced and unfilmed works of John Carpenter. I am Noel, and joining me on this episode is AJ. How you doing, everybody? AJ, you want to tell people who you are and where people can find you online? My name is Albert Muller. You can call me AJ. You can find me online. I used to write for HorrorView.com under the pen name AJ McCready. A little bit of a tribute to my favorite horror movie ever made. I think that fits in with the whole John Carpenter thing we've got going on. Oh, is that where that came from? Yes, yes. <laughs> AJ McCready. That's my Twitter name, at AJ underscore McCready. You can find me on Twitter there. And these days you can find me writing for Daily Grindhouse. I just tend to be a scoundrel on Twitter and babble a lot about movies. And I've enjoyed having many babbles along with you. Indeed. So we are here to discuss Firestarter, an adaptation of the Stephen King movie, and we're going to be recording this episode in three separate segments. Our first segment, we have the original Stephen King novel and the finished film, which was released in 1984. We're just going to use that as a foundation to then build on, I have not one, but two drafts of the screenplay for when John Carpenter was set to. We'll get into those here in just a little bit when we get to the later segments, but just focusing on the novel and the film that we have... AJ, had you ever read Stephen King's Firestarter before doing it for this show? Yeah, I have. A couple of times. The first time would have been when I was in my initial Stephen King inhalation stage as a younger kid. I started reading Stephen King when I was 10 years old. Mm. My aunt was a big horror fan and had a, a lot of his books. And I had seen Creepshow. That was one of the very first horror movies that made a really big impact on me as a little dude. And seeing Stephen King everywhere in the early 80s, his books were in every grocery store, the drugstore, you know, not just the bookstore. Commercials for his movies on the screen that were very much plastering his name all over the ads. It was just Stephen King, Stephen King, Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And I was really getting into horror. And so I just randomly picked one. I had been reading since I was little. I was that geeky kid who always brought books to school and would hurry up and finish his homework so he could get into a book. So I was already a reader, but hadn't really read anything horror-related that was specifically intended for adults. And Stephen King was my big entryway into that. And the first thing I read was The Shining, and that was it. Then I read Night Shift, and from there, I just started going through everything he had published through about late 1984, early 1985. Mm. And at some point in that journey, I did Firestarter. And I know I did it again at some point in high school, and probably again, I want to say the last time I did it would have been in my early 20s, so it could have been anywhere between 20 and 25 years ago was the last time I read it. It was a really pleasant revisit, let me say. I can't remember the second or third time I've read this. It was one of the first King books I read. I didn't really start getting into books until junior high. And throughout high school, I would read, and I know the first three Stephen King books I read in high school were Firestarter, Running Man, and The Rage. 
Nice. Little Richard Bachman there. Oh, yeah. When I graduated high school, I started working a night shift, which lasted for six years. <laughs> so I had a lot of open time on my hands. And that was when I first set out to read all of Stephen King. And I think I made it up to Dead Zone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about like every short story, every novel in chronological order. I don't think I reread Firestarter then, and though that would have been the next book. And I was also, you know, like watching every movie. So I like watched all 10 Children of the Corns and (laughs) poor, poor soul. All of the Night Shift collection movies, which there's a lot of them. So I kind of took a break from King because taking too deep of a dive in King can kind of burn you out, especially after the stand. Blasphemer. Not that I didn't enjoy reading it, but it's just, you kind of need a break and I didn't give myself a break. But anyways, then like seven or eight years ago, my friend Angie, who does the Joel Schumacher series Schumacast with me, she did a project called Castle Rock Companion, where she went through every single film adaptation of a Stephen King book or short story. And I found out she wasn't going to cover the sequels and I had already seen most of them. So I'm like, can I do a spinoff? And so I did Castle Rock Cash-In covering all of the sequels. So I went back and I not only have seen all those Children of the Corns and Manglers and all that stuff, I've seen them twice. (laughs) You put yourself out there, man. No one can ever take that away from you. And of course, this did include Firestarter 2 Rekindled. Eh, That's not awful. Yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, I didn't finish it. Well, we'll probably bring it up a little more later on. But Firestarter, again, I reread it during that period and read it again here in prep for this. And Stephen King is someone... I like taking momentary binges through his work, but there's so much of it that I can't just like keep going. I always need to take breaks, (laughs) but I do still keep chipping away. I love Steven. I just love him as a person. He's the raddest. He's my hero. And I get what you're saying. I mean, I, yeah, he's written so much and it could definitely be overwhelming to try to dive into the deep end and just keep going. Oh yeah. And it's not like he's ever repetitive or anything. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it can be a bit much. Oh yeah. But for me, the way I'm built, if something is good, you just keep going until it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) So even as a kid, I did not have a problem with that. I did not stop reading his stuff until I was completely caught up with the new ones that were coming out. So just kind of moving into the book Firestarter. The book was published on September 29th, 1980, and was Stephen King's ninth published book. It came out between The Dead Zone and Cujo, and right in the middle of that Richard Bachman period. Mm Mm-hmm. Andy McGee and his young daughter, Charlie, are on the run. Back in his college days, Andy and his future wife, Vicky, were part of a drug trial for Lot 6, a brain stimulant which gave the two extrasensory abilities while driving others in the experiment to incurable madness. Unbeknownst to them, the experiment was sponsored by the covert government agency, The Shop. And when the agency learns that little Charlie McGee is a powerful pyrokinetic, able to set fires with her mind, they move in, killing Vicky and attempting to abduct Charlie, which is foiled by Andy using his power to push other people into following his orders. It takes a toll on him, though, and he's pushed to his limit when The Shop confronts them on the farm of the kindly Manders couple. Charlie, though, finally unleashes her abilities, leaving agents dead and vehicles destroyed in a spectacular blaze. Father and daughter take up in an isolated cabin, but are soon rediscovered and become the targets of John Rainbird, a shop assassin with his own plans for Charlie. After the McGees are captured and locked away in a shop compound, Rainbird poses as a kindly orderly, befriending Charlie and encouraging her to use her powers in tests for the agency. Meanwhile, Andy rests, recuperating his powers and eventually pushes Cap Hollister, the director of the shop, into setting up an escape plan. Unfortunately, Rainbird catches wind and gets in the way, leading to the deaths of Cap and Andy. This also sets Charlie loose, and after blazing away Rainbird for his betrayals, she unleashes on the shop compound, leaving nothing but ash and devastation in her wake. 
Escaping back to the Anders farm, Charlie decides to tell her story to the media in the hopes of regaining some semblance of a normal life. So AJ, do you recommend Firestarter as a book? I do. I think it's a very involving story. His skill as a storyteller takes you through. It's a fairly straightforward story, which Mm -hmm. that synopsis is pretty much laid out. In fact, going back and rereading it for the first time in 15 to 20 years was really interesting because I had forgotten just how straightforward it is. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, they're on run. They have their showdown at the Manders farm. Then they hide out for a little bit at the cabin. Then they get kidnapped, go back to the compound in Virginia. And pretty much the last few hundred pages of the book, at least the last half of it, is all set at the compound. Mm -hmm. Now, interspersed throughout that first half is flashbacks to their earlier life and finding out why Andy and Charlie are on the run and all of the stuff about Lot 6 and the doctor involved in the trials, Dr. Wanless, and all of that good stuff. But it's pretty much a very, very straightforward story, which I found really, really surprising. Not like I remembered it being overly complex, but just seemed so streamlined if you just go along with it. And his skill at sitting down and just telling you a story in that voice that Stephen King has. When I first opened the book, before I knew it, I was 30 pages in. (laughs) You just go. So definitely, I would very, very much recommend it to anybody that enjoys these type of stories. I highly recommend for that. Yeah, and I recommend it as well. Stephen has a reputation, and I don't entirely say this as a criticism because he's one of the few who can make this work, of having very expansive and I almost want to use the word meandering. His books are very full of stuff. You know, (laughs) his books can be a little long winded and can kind of go all over the place, which sometimes makes for some spectacular backstories and added depths and themes and layers and sometimes can make his books a little hard to get into. It's kind of easy to forget that there are times when he can just be really lean and focused and really play a very strong, tight story. And that's why I think it was kind of cool that I read this one around the same time as I read those Bachman books, because it's kind of very similar to that. It's a very lean, on the run, everything's moving at a really good clip. You get pulled into it. It's very in the moment. Even the flashbacks are still very in the moment, little periods of rest between the tension. It's a very well-paced and structured and organized novel. Mm -hmm. I absolutely recommend checking it out. And I think it actually works really well as an intro. Like if you're kind of uncertain about the Stephen King style or how looming some of his books can be just looking at them in your hand, I think it's actually a really good jumping on point. I would agree because it's very representative of how he tells the story too. You know, even though it's not as complex. He's never been afraid to, as you said, a lot of people call it meandering. Some people call him overwritten. I think Stephen King is largely responsible for a lot of the ways I absorb story and what Mm -hmm. it is I like about story, because I did start reading him so young. For other people, his meandering, to me, is just more story. The thing about Stephen King that he gets that not a lot of writers do or really care to get into or that they don't have the skills or would bore them or they're afraid it would bore their readers, Stephen King doesn't give a shit. He sees that there's a story to be told in everything. Mm -hmm. Every person has a story. Every object has a story. Every place has a story. A car, a haunted car, has a story. (laughs) I remember a creative writing class in college. The Green Mile had just come out, and someone was complaining about, Stephen King will spend two pages writing about a chair. The way she was presenting it was as if he would talk about the type of wood that was used and the ornate carvings into the side of it and exactly the sort of leather that covered the seat and, you know, boring things about the specificities Mm -hmm. of the chair. When she was done, I was like, allow me to give the other side of this. He will tell a story about the chair. Like maybe when the chair was being made, someone got their hand cut and the blood soaked into the wood. And now there's something weird about the chair. 
to him, it's always about storytelling. It's not about purple prose. It's not about showing off his vocabulary. It's not about doing any of that horseshit. It's about storytelling. It's about setting the scene. It's about immersing the reader in a world. It's about bringing you in and letting everything breathe around you. And it just kind of drops you into the middle of these worlds that he creates. And the way the real world is, when we find out about the people around us, the items around us, the places around us, all those do, in fact, have stories. Stephen King just gives them to you while he's writing it. You know, in real life, we may learn about them over the course of a few years to our entire lives. Stephen King will give it to you in a few hundred pages. It's just story, story, story from a lot of different angles. And so I love that, and I like it when someone is telling a story and they don't mind doing the meandering thing to just give you a little more, to give you a little extra. And that's why I don't care if his books go seven, eight, nine hundred pages. I would be happy if they all went 2,000 pages, and I'm probably not in a large group of people who would stand with me on that. But that's cool. I don't really care. I love it. Just have it be like L. Ron Hubbard. Break it into 10 volumes. (laughs) Well, that's what they did with The Dark Tower, but it's a completely different podcast. My thing is, by the nature of how he discovers his stories through the process of writing them, every Stephen King book is a journey. You're literally going out to explore with King. Sometimes you're going to go down unexpected paths. Sometimes you're going to find something new. Sometimes something will hit a dead end. It's always going to be a trip. And it's interesting to see the exploration of him finding the stories as much as it is reading the stories. My argument, though, is that still doesn't always work. I fully understand and appreciate that as a technique, and there's times when it's absolutely beautiful and wonderful, but there are other times where I feel the story can get lost in all the other sub-stories. I love having the fact that everything in the world can have a story, but if it's still not all built around the main central story, then why is this a story? I can't disagree with you. I can't say that that's incorrect or anything. It just depends on personal taste. This is all subjective. Yeah. Some people just know what the story is about, and they want to be told the damn story. Yeah. You know, and why are you talking about something that happened on the lake 30 fucking years ago that has nothing to do with now, and it isn't going to have any major bearing on the story? It's not something that we're going to find out here that will suddenly enlighten us down the road. Go, oh, that's why. And it's not going to have any of that. He's just telling you just to tell you. Yeah. So, yeah, in that sense, he's like a long-winded storyteller who just can't stop getting sidetracked. And I I do get that. I do get that. It's just that for me, his voice and the way he tells a story, I'm going to follow. I'm going to let him tell me what he wants to tell me. I'm going to listen. And yeah, it's not like I love all of those stories. It's not like I go, now that I'm glad was in the book. Mm -hmm. I am glad I read it. I'm always glad I read it. But definitely some of it, it's like, well, yeah, that didn't necessarily need to be there. And would I miss it if it was gone? Not so much. Am I glad I read it at least this one time? Sure I am. I know that can also make it harder for me to revisit certain books because it's like, I know the parts that I want to get to, I have to wade through all this other stuff to get there. (laughs) Unless I do it like Princess Bride style, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to bring it back to Firestarter, I mean, yeah, what's interesting is that I don't want to say this to say that his other books are unfocused. I don't mean that, but it is a much more focused and leaner book. Definitely. It's not really like a sprawling ensemble. And again, to be fair, like so many of his books are about a town, a place, and it's all these things that happen there. And that's great. What I love is that this movie is very much anchored on this father, this daughter, and the people who are after them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has little moments like tell the story of the post office guy. Let's tell the story of the shop down the corner. But it always leads you right back to where the main central focuses. Definitely. And I think that's why it can be more accessible than like, hey, here's Christine. (laughs) Christine seems like it should be a straightforward story. And then you get into that 600 page book. (laughs) (laughs) 
definitely some of his stuff can be a bit unwieldy, for sure, for sure. And I do agree that this is very focused, and that's what I was saying earlier, that I didn't recall it being as A to Z as it was, just kind of straight line, more or less. Except for, again, the flashbacks. And the flashbacks are necessary. Yes. Not much in the flashbacks is superfluous or there just to be there. Oh, it's all incredibly important exposition, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it reads well, and it's exciting, especially, you know, when they kidnap her after killing Vicky. He finds Vicky, he goes after her, and where he confronts him at the rest stop. I didn't remember how that went down, and I was really engrossed. And even just the detail that it was because they thought that the daughter had fled when she was just staying at a friend's house, you know? Exactly. They were not the most efficient guys <laughs> running that mm-hmm. kind of government program. They were kind of flying by the seat of their pants, and they didn't really know what the fuck they were doing. So yeah, mm-hmm. they blew it. They panicked. They kill her, take the kid, and they pushed him into a place they didn't want to push him. And who's to say? And what's nice is that it very much reads like it's coming out of that wave of 70s conspiracy thrillers. Mm -hmm. Someone's on the run. The government is after them. Twists and turns, backstory, all that stuff. Halfway through, you get the reversal where now the government has the upper hand, and then it's all building to a conclusion where they then turn it back over on the government. And it's such a great play on that formula. Yeah, definitely. And especially with all the paranoia present at the time in the late 70s, you know, the whole losing Mm -hmm. faith in institutions and governments and the people who are supposed to protect us. But instead, we realize, no, they really just want to kick our ass. You know, the man is not just listening to everything you say. He's not just watching you. He's actively out to get you. And all your worst nightmares have been made manifest. And now they've got you and you're in their clutches. But then, like you said, at the end, the reversal of that where, okay, well, what about if we finally get the upper hand and we just stick it to the man? And that's pretty satisfying. We literally rain down on them everything that they set in motion themselves. Exactly. Exactly. All the way back to when they panicked and killed his wife, killed her mom. If they had handled it differently, it probably would not have ended that way, at least not there. Yeah. And they taught her how to get better at it. (laughs) Which I think is awesome. It reminds me of Christopher Titus talking about how his mom, who was mentally ill and was abused by her second or third husband or something, he had gotten her a gun for protection and taught her how to use it, but didn't think that it would be a good idea to stop being an evil asshole and stop beating on her. So he beat her and she shot him with the gun that he taught her how to use and bought for (laughs) her. Wow. Which I think is awesome. That's karma, baby. Karma's a harsh mistress, but she always gets her man. So yeah, I mean, Charlie, they taught her how to focus her strengths and her powers, and they taught her how to use it in a way that she didn't know how to before, and she didn't know how good it could be to her. They destroyed the illusion that this power is just this evil thing I have to lock away. Mm -hmm. It's a tool. Because it's like, you guys are worse. (laughs) (laughs) And she is a good kid, Mm -hmm. so she knows that, you know, this is not something I should do just because it's the cool thing to do. So I'm going to try and keep it under wraps and be a good girl, not do the bad thing, like Daddy says. But you guys, I can go ahead and use it on you. I'm pretty positive. Because they've been given every opportunity to just stop, and they never stop. Oh, yeah. And that's why I like the way that her father, when he's dying and he's pressuring her to cut loose, is like, remind them that they're at war with you. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. now about survival. This isn't about what's good and what's bad. You can't compromise with these people. They killed your mother. They killed me. They made this. Mm -hmm. They set this in motion, and they still won't give up on trying to control it. You are at war with them now. And so you can't half-ass it? You can't just put them aside for now and hope that they will forget about you or be scared about you? Everybody here, you end them. 
more from other places may end up coming after you. We all know that it's bigger than just this Mm -hmm. place, but this is where it starts and this is where it's going to end. Everybody who is here today, you make sure that none of them will ever come after you ever again. You leave them here dead. What I like is that she is still separating, like, don't kill all the secretaries and technicians. (laughs) She's literally just taking out the people who keep coming at her. Anyone who's Mm -hmm. running from her, she lets them run. Yeah. Even though a lot of them die on the electric fence into the docks. (laughs) (laughs) Old irony, it's good for your blood, as Big Steve says his own self. Yeah. And my God, just the slaughter. (laughs) It's interesting because it's very much a redo of, I don't see this as a criticism, of Carrie White. Not only unleashing on the prom, but then continuing to unleash on the entire town as she walks home. Definitely. It's some glorious carnage, to be sure. (laughs) But unlike Carrie, you know, Carrie has basically just had a breakdown and is just lashing out at everyone and everything. This is Charlie finally in control of and appreciating what she's capable of. Yeah, she's not been driven mad to a degree like Carrie. She is reeling from grief, but once she starts, it's cold, calculating fury that takes over her, these bad men that she is going to show. Yeah, they've been in a war. This is what is left behind, and it ain't much. It's smoking, and it's ash. And so she's got that cold fury manifesting itself in all the hot fire. Yeah. It's impressive. And, you know, going back to the first big set piece at the Manders Farm. Yeah. That was awesome. Rereading this was a blast. You know, I knew the big beats. There were little moments that I'd forgotten a little bit of the grace notes and certain elements that had gone over me. The builds to the big moments are as fun as the big moments. Definitely, definitely. And again, that's a testament to his skill as a storyteller. He's making you say, okay, really? I can feel it. We're coming. It's beginning to accumulate. We're accelerating. Mm -hmm. Cruise into ramming speed and... Boom, everything goes up, and he just lays waste right along with Charlie, and it is fucking fun. What did you think of Andy McGee? I liked Andy. As per usual in his early books, you know, they say, write what you know. and That's right. He's an English teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big Steve is not just a writer, but began as an English teacher. So a lot of his protagonists are either writers and or English teachers. I liked Andy, and especially the way that he describes him. It was almost like he was writing a description of himself, physically speaking. You know, dark Mm -hmm. hair, longish hair, a little tall, kind of broad-shouldered. So when I was rereading it this time, I was basically seeing late 70s Big Steve running around in the book. And he's a likable guy, not perfect. He's a guy. That's why he's just a normal guy who's fallen into this situation that no one should ever have had to fall in. Exactly. That is always what most people overlook when they're talking about Stephen King, and especially when you're adapting his works. The people who get it right are the ones who understand that it's not just about the monsters or the horror or the gore. Oh, God, yeah. It's about the people. It's always about the people. It's cliche, but it's what Stephen King does best. You know, ordinary people thrown into extraordinary circumstances. People, the families, the communities, yeah. Yeah, and what happens when they're confronted with something that they have never confronted before? It drives them crazy, or it brings the hero out of them, or they run, or, you know, exposes them as a coward. And Andy is very much just an everyday guy. He's got his wife he loves, their daughter they love, and he's just trying to get by. And he hopes that the people that fucked with them a few years back will leave them alone. And of course they don't. And then he has to run and he's terrified and feels awful crushing guilt about what it's doing to his daughter. And it's all very relatable. Yeah, You understand. And the way that King essays that character and lays it all out for you, it's really hard not to empathize with him, not to sympathize for the guy and just think, shit, he is going through some hell right now. 
you want him to get through it. And that's why yeah. his ultimate fate is such a punch in the gut. Cause you want yeah. to believe that he and Charlie are going to see it to the end of the book and they're going to live to fight another day and they're going to be mm-hmm. together. But that's just not how it works out sometimes. And it hurts because you've come to care about him. And I even love little details. Like he knows he has this power. He knows what he can do with this power. What would you do if you had this power? I'm going to become a self-help guru. <laughs> and so he's like helping people with weight loss and succeeding at work. <laughs> little pushes yeah. that just give people confidence and encouragement. I think that's awesome. Yeah, no, I love that detail. But I also love how his power takes a toll on him. And like, I think they even mentioned like potentially pinprick hemorrhages in his brain every time he uses it. Mm-hmm. And if he uses it on top of having used it, he could kill himself. And to the point where he pushes himself to where the power dies and he literally loses his power for a while and spends that whole chunk of the book where he's literally just doped up on whatever drugs they give him sitting in front of a TV he's barely watching. Yeah, they've got him on Thorazine and he's getting Elvis fat. And then there's that great bit where there's the blackout, he can't take his meds, and in a moment of clarity, not only does his power come back, but he pushes himself to get over that addiction and starts gradually regaining his powers and making a plan. No, I think that's rad. I love that whole thing. I had forgotten that completely. Mm -hmm. I did not remember that he got addicted to Thorazine. I didn't remember any of that. So as I'm reading it this time, I'm like, okay, so now all of a sudden he's hooked on Thorazine shades of what he would do a few years later down the line with Paul Sheldon in Misery. Even The Shining. Oh, yeah. He had swapped his addiction for alcohol with addiction to painkillers, which to be fair, Stephen King had done too. Yes. Yeah. A lot of that is very, very autobiographical. Because he was the alcoholic, then he got hooked on painkillers, then Hollywood happened, and then cocaine and maximum overdrive. Yes. (laughs) Yes. He's excited about his first movie and a big fat fucking briefcase of Bolivian marching powder he's got in the trailer. (laughs) Yeah. But getting back to Andy, what I was going to say mm-hmm. was I'd forgotten about that entire situation. So I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, now he's sucked on dope. How are they going to get him off the pills? What's going to happen? And so the blackout happens. And I remembered the whole parallel story with Charlie and John and how he used his quote unquote fear of the dark to insinuate himself. I did not remember that Andy goes into his head and pushes himself into kicking painkillers. And I thought that was awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's back. And it really sends him on a hero arc that he had been in that role in the first part of the book because, you know, he's protecting his daughter. He's keeping them one step ahead of the guys. But then they get caught, gets Elvis fat and hooked on pills. Now he starts turning it around and starts becoming more proactive in a way. And the Mm -hmm. clarity of I see a way to get out from under them. Yeah. Even before he actually sees the way to do it with Cap, I know I have to save my daughter. I know she's here. I know she's in a lot more trouble than I am. And he just figures it out and he goes and you're like, yeah, Andy, you know, that's why it hurts so much more when everything goes to shit at the end. And while Charlie definitely unleashes at the end, he's the one who sets everything in motion. Oh, yeah. And so he still gets that nice hero act. Exactly. Without setting up what he did, she doesn't have the ability to do everything. And that was also something that I forgot was that she actually stopped believing in Rainbird even before that ending. I liked how he set everything in motion for the shop's plan to completely fall apart. Mm-hmm. And just that progression of his powers and then also getting into the whole thing of the echoes and the ricochets and how his powers can have unfortunate effects on people. And, you know, of course, with the poor Dr. Pinchot at first, <laughs> who ends up committing suicide by a garbage disposal. While dressed in his wife's underwear. And then, of course, even Cap, when he gets pushed, gets that whole fixation on golf clubs and snakes in the grass, you know? Yeah, I didn't remember that either. That was something. Yeah. (laughs) It's a nice little extra addition to, we use these tools 
but we don't necessarily know all the effects they will have and how those things may come to bite us at unexpected and woefully inopportune times. Well, and it's also his powers are ones where he's never really had an ability to train and hone them the way that Charlie has. I mean, he did kind of when he was doing that self-help thing, but that was more just small pushes just to kind of boost confidence. That's a bit of a different level than telling someone you're blind <laughs> or making someone follow your every command. That probably involves a lot of rewiring of a person, you know? Yeah. And he's basically doing it with a sledgehammer, not finessed. Yeah, it's not an ice pick. It's a grenade. Yeah. And like you said, the toll it's having on him... And at the end of the book, they even make that clear. One of the last pushes he does on Cap, his brain starts to bleed. He has like a stroke, yeah. Yeah, he's probably not going to come back from this. This may actually end up killing him a ways down the road here. Yeah. And not like six months, maybe like a week or so. Even just having used his powers, even if they had just continued to live on the run, he would probably die early of like a blood clot of something just from all the micro tears that he's created. Yeah, tons of hemorrhages, you know, just suddenly one day. And that's what's interesting about Charlie is they even brought that up where Vicky just had the kind of limited telepathy and telekinesis, not particularly strong, could just do little small things here and there, but it would still make her nauseous and give her headaches too. Mm -hmm. Charlie never seems to have any of the negative repercussions, probably because, you know, she's a second generation from getting this from both parents. Mm -hmm. So her body is more adjusted to it on a genetic level. I think the most is that she just gets tired whenever she uses it just because of the calorie burn of it. Yeah, it makes her want to sleep. That's about it. But otherwise, it's not something that's going to cause her to die for having used it, whereas just the mere fact that he's used his powers up to the point where we start the novel, he's probably already doomed himself to die at a younger age. Yeah, definitely. Than he normally would have, for sure. So just to kind of get into like our third major character of the book, what do you think about John Rainbird? I like John Rainbird. Not like as in want to hang out with the dude. I like him as a character. No, I like my nose bone where it is. <laughs> exactly. The specificity of, I'm going to just hit you across the bridge of your nose a little bit again. Yeah, I, I found him fascinating. I love that the shop saw everybody as a tool. They want Andy potentially to use his push as a tool for them. Charlie, they don't know what she can do, so they want to find out. And once they see her start to do stuff, they just flip out and don't really care about the repercussions or what it can mean or anything. All they see is, oh my gosh, she can do all this. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with Rainbird. Rainbird is a tool, a blunt instrument. He's there to sanction people. He's the enforcer. But I love that Rainbird is not specifically what they think he is. They have not given him credit. He knows a lot more than they are aware. He's more dangerous in ways beyond the physical that they are not aware of. It ends up screwing characters I actually care about in the book, the way he's ahead of people. Mm -hmm. But I do like that he is consistently several steps ahead of virtually everybody else in the book. And he can think ahead to see where things are going to go before they ever get there. And not just life and death situations, but the way that Charlie will react to this or react to that. And that's before he even befriends her. While even still being able to improvise in the moment. Exactly, exactly. And understanding what he needs to do to play the long game in order to get him in her confidence and get her on his side and get her to care about him. And then going through with that plan and every beetle of the way, he's really, really smart. And 
obviously in the intervening years since the whole brilliant hitman thing has been done mm-hmm. and I'm sure it was done plenty of times before King tackled the trope but I just really like how he went about doing it and his whole obsession with death and the decision he makes that they can do whatever the fuck they want with Charlie they can make her do all their little tests she can burn down half the world for all he cares as long as when they're done he gets her and he gets to kill her and he gets to hopefully find out what he's been looking for all this time and then he can follow her into the great unknown or whatever I thought all that worked. I really liked it. And I thought King did a really good job of first sketching him out and then filling him in. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think he's a character who it almost feels like he's in danger of overtaking the story in the second half. But he's so beautifully woven into the story of Andy and Charlie that I like that who he instead overtakes are the other people in the shop, Mm -hmm. as he is even a bigger threat than Cap. You know, he is probably the biggest monster in the novel in terms of the power that he wields and how he literally has an upper hand on everybody, while also making it so that everyone underestimates him and doesn't know he has Mm -hmm. an upper hand on them. Because he's not just playing a con on Charlie, he's playing a con on everyone. Yeah, everything he does is by design. It's very calculated. Whereas Cap is more or less just a suit. He's a bureaucrat, yeah. Yeah, he's the top of the pyramid. He's the head of the corporation. And as such, Cap does a great lot of evil, but kind of just in a casually afterthought kind of way, like without considering collateral damage. Rainbird knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it and enjoys doing it. Mm Kind of gets off on it. It's a fun game to him to turn people against each other or to play the mind games or to insinuate himself. That thing that Charlie catches where she sees him smile differently than she's ever seen him smile before. And that's what first makes her suspicious. Yeah, exactly. So he's so proud of himself and having so much fun with this subterfuge that he fucks himself. Essentially, Mm -hmm. that's what allows her to believe later what she doesn't want to believe because she's finally made this friend in the absence of her dad and being surrounded by all these people who she is aware do not have her best interests at heart and do not care about her as a person. She's finally met someone who does care about her as a person, so she believes. And so she's a little kid. But she's not stupid. You know, if she had been just of randomly average intelligence, it probably would have gone okay for them. But no, she is not stupid. And she ends up holding that a little bit against them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She Mm -hmm. takes it personally, especially once they kill her daddy. Oh, yes. She definitely takes it. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Now, I know King has had criticisms against her for his portrayal of certain ethnic characters. In terms of Rainbird being a Native American... What I like is that him being a Native American is not intrinsic to any of the stuff that's a characteristic to him. All of this stuff can just be a really cold-hearted hitman who has this whole machination and this fascination with death. So I, I don't feel it falls into any of the stereotypes that I've heard some people accuse it of. Yeah, no, I don't believe it does. No. It's literally just a piece of the character. Yeah. It's not drum-pounding bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And he doesn't play it up. Yeah, I mean, there's a few comments here and there about it, but otherwise it's mostly about his abilities, his ambition, his machinations, and all of those are just based around being one of the most monstrous hitmen around. (laughs) (laughs) The most monstrous hitmen. I love his house full of shoes that he never wears. (laughs) All that he does with all of the money he makes in this job is he has a house full of shoes, of just all different kinds of shoes, and he never wears the shoes. He just likes to hold them every now and then, look at them, appreciate them. 
I mean, that's an excellent character detail, and it's what the online film critic Outlaw Vern calls badass juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. The way that Chow Yun Fat's character Tequila in Hard Boiled also plays jazz trumpet, I think yeah. it is. But yeah, he loves his shoes and shoe trees everywhere, and he'll just like to look at them and hold them. <laughs> I didn't remember that either. Obviously, that's not the kind of thing that is going to hang out in your head when you read it as a younger guy, and 20-something years later, you reread it. But I laughed so hard (laughs) when that was introduced. I was like, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Now, here's the thing, though. We've talked so much about how Stephen King finds the story and everything and all these little stories. He never told the story of what happened to those fucking shoes. You know, that's true. Somewhere out there, there's still that dusty old house full of all these hidden (laughs) shoes. Well, yeah, that house was probably, there's no paper on it. It was free and clear. So it probably just sat there. I will just end with this then in terms of the character from the book. It could have been really easy for King to really hammer home. This is a proud Native American man. And he could have had a lot of shit dialogue like with Cap about, well, I seem to remember what happened when my forefathers trusted men like you. A lot of really heavy handed, and I mean tons. A lesser writer would have had that in virtually every conversation that Rainbird had. He could show up at the uh, stables in war paint. Exactly. John, why are you wearing a headdress? Because it's what my people did for centuries, Charlie. You know, all that shit. But he didn't do that. It was just part of, you know, this is the character. He's Native American. So that informs who he is. But it's not like the movie Crash, where literally every single fucking thing these people talk about is related to race in some way or another. And I know racial politics and stuff like that is important, but regular people do not have every single conversation around that. It just doesn't happen. And not every single person talks about their ethnicity in every conversation they have. (laughs) It does not inform every single thing they do all the time. They're just people. And I love that King did not take the easy, cliched way of doing that. I don't think that's something he always succeeds at, especially in some of his earlier books. But I think this is a case where he does it well. Yeah. That's what I like. As he grows, he's continued to improve himself. I love the shop agent, OJ. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like we have so many shop agents who come in and out of the story because most of them get killed. And you just have OJ, who's a terrible person. But I kind of love that even when they find out, oh, the girl's escaping, she's at the stables. He's like, oh, fuck it. I'm out of here. No, I'm not. No, I was there at the farm. I'm not doing this again. And he's one of the first people hitting the fences. Definitely. I had kind of wanted to see him get immolated in a big, bad way because of what a gaping asshole he was. But I do like that his reaction was, yeah, no, no. This isn't something that helps him grow into a better person, but he still got away. (laughs) He's smart enough to understand you don't want to play with Charlie. If you're going to throw fire at me, it's going to hit me in my ass or my elbow because I'm going to be fucking Mm -hmm. running. Okay. And then the other major characters, what do you think of the Manders? I like him. I like him. A lot of people like to say that King lays on the folksy thing pretty thick, but I grew up around a lot of people like that. You know, I grew up in the country around farmers. The straightforward, no bullshit way that Irv talks and the way that you might think he's just some kind of rude country hick, you know, like that. But no, he's not. He is pretty quick and sees into shit pretty easily and is not stupid and goes along with it because there's no real reason to make a fuss because, you know, he's trying to be good for Roberta or Bobby. But he speaks what's on his mind. And I like the conversation he has with Andy at the dinner table there when the girls Mm -hmm. go outside to feed the Mm -hmm. chickens. And Andy finally has someone to tell all this stuff to and just lays it out. And Irv doesn't immediately, oh, okay, yeah, 
he's a little wary. Like, that's a pretty crazy story. But, uh, okay, okay. I'm not sure I believe it, but we'll see what goes on. And then when he sees the powers. <laughs> yeah. Is she doing that? I owe you an apology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I like Norma. Yeah. I like her very human reaction. She's not perfect, and she's kind of fucking harsh. Well, and this is a very scary thing to suddenly have dropped onto your home, especially in the book where her entire home burns down as a result of yeah, this. Yeah, and her husband's been shot. People are on fucking fire wandering around her yard. Cop cars are blowing up. It's chaos. She doesn't know if her husband's going to be okay. She doesn't know if Charlie's just going to snap and burn them all. And she, you know, take your little monster and get out of here. Mm -hmm. She hissed. I'm not saying that makes her a great person. I'm saying that makes her a very believable human being. It makes her a person. Yeah, that is a very understandable reaction. I'm not going to actively try to attack you or anything. I'm not going to go crazy on you. Am I going to tell you to get your kid and get the fuck away from me and mine? Yes, now. I mean, hell, you blew up her chickens. <laughs> or popping into chicken nuggets before there were such a thing. Poppers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will agree. I do think King lays, pretty much lays everything down thick. Any type of characterization he does, he lays on thick. But if you're going to make a peanut butter sandwich, do you want it on thin or do you want it laid on thick? I don't mind it when things are a bit exaggerated. I mean, the thing about King is things are a little exaggerated, a little over the top everywhere. But that's something that I kind of like. That's what I like about Twin Peaks. That's what I like about Terry Gilliam. You know, I like it when it's everything's cranked up just a bit. That makes it just a little more vibrant, a little more lively, a little more in your face. Some of the film adaptations can make that a little garish. <laughs> but in terms of like his actual work, I like that quality. Everything is so wonderfully woven together to make a complex human being. And then it's just got that little bit of exaggeration just to give it almost a little whimsy to it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's fiction. It's not dust dry reporting. So he's going to have a little fun with it. And he's going to amp it up a little bit. It's going to be set in a somewhat recognizable world. And again, you can relate to people in his folksy sayings, you know, it's not pushed so far to the fantastic that it's surreal. Oh, yeah, no. But there's a degree of hyper-real to it, for sure. For sure. And that's what fiction is. Fiction is the truth inside the lie. And you never forget that he's lying because, you know, there's a little girl running around shooting flames from her brain. <laughs> but there's truth in that. She's a relatable kid. Manders is a relatable people. Andy is an understandable guy. That's just good writing to me. It's a good storytelling anyway. And that's why I think the best way to describe Stephen King's style is if the Andy Griffith show were possessed by Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> I like that. I don't know that it applies to all of it, but I do definitely like it. And I could point out more than a few that do. Yeah, yeah, definitely applies yeah. to and there's so many of his where, especially the ones that are about a small town community, where it's the Andy Griffith show for like the first hundred pages, and then things start getting a little weird. Yeah. And by the end, everyone's going insane. Definitely, definitely. And that's cool. Those are the lessons he learned from Richard Matheson, that horror yeah. could be in the house next door, in the playground, at the school, at the church, in your hometown. It doesn't have to be some creaky old gothic manse on the moors or some such. It's all around. So much a Firestarter is very much resembles a lot of the 70s conspiracy thrillers, but it's still also a very Stephen King story. 
Mm-hmm. Just the whole horror of Andy drugged out of his mind, trying to maneuver through his apartment when there's the blackout. How that's played as a full-on horror sequence almost. Yeah. That's a very Stephen King moment. Even though nothing ultimately happens, there's nothing there to hurt him. It's the fear that there might be something. Yeah. It gave me flashbacks to the stand. I was expecting some... Oh, the tunnel? No, no, no. The stew getting out of the CDC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That someone would suddenly just grab Andy's leg and go, come chicken with me in the dark. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and that whole anxiety thing of once you get an image in your head, it's kind of going to be stuck in your head until you get past it. Exactly. Especially when you're in pitch black darkness. And then just to wrap up the novel, I do love the whole conclusion of writing letters to the press didn't work. Who would be the best press to go to that doesn't have ties to the government? She goes to Rolling Stone magazine. Hell yeah. (laughs) That was awesome. If it's good enough for Raoul Duke, it's good enough for Charlene McGee. (laughs) So any final thoughts on the novel before we move on to the movie? Just that I think it's a great book. It's a great read. It's a lot of fun. The story is compelling. The characters make you care, which is really all I can ask for. I think it's fantastic. I think it's just a really, really well-told story, and it's a lot of fun. With some extra tragedy. Yes. (laughs) I think it's a really solid thriller. What's fascinating about King is he's such a mix of Americana and classic literature and B-movies and pulp. And what I love is that this one, it's still all that. It's an airport thriller with his Americana, with his pulp horror, with this whole Esper mindset. And it's all that honed into a pretty lean, tight, really entertaining read. So moving on to the film adaptation, which came out May 11th, 1984. This was the second of six Stephen King adaptations produced by the Dino De Laurentiis Company, which had only just started the previous year with Dead Zone. This film was made during Dino's partnership with Universal Pictures, and at the time, John Carpenter was in the middle of a run of films that he made with Universal, including Halloween's 2 and 3, which were produced by De Laurentiis. So naturally, John Carpenter was the initial director signed up to direct this movie. Now, in terms of the specifics of that, he initially had a draft by Bill Lancaster, who wrote The Thing for him. He then had a draft by Bill Phillips, who would do Christine with him. But we're going to set John aside, because we're going to get into the John Carpenter version coming up soon. But suffice it to say, the reason he was let go is, as much as it's regarded as a classic today, The Thing bombed. And not only with audiences, but with critics. So Universal got cold feet and took him off the project, sadly. Because I don't know, Albert, are you a fan of The Thing? A little bit. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> yeah. It's only the greatest horror movie ever made, don't you know? Exactly. And the sad thing is, like so many of John Carpenter's movies, while it's looked at as a classic today, boy, was it not well received when it first came out. Well, what is it? What's the percentage? Like half of his movies are only appreciated after time? He's been so screwed. Even when his films were well reviewed, they still didn't do well. Bunch of ungrateful bastards. We'll bring up Carpenter again here a little down the road. And suffice it to say, as soon as he was let go from Firestarter, he went over to Columbia TriStar, where he ended up directing the adaptation of Stephen King's Christine. Which is hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. So the director who was ultimately chosen for Firestarter was Mark L. Lester. He made his directorial debut in 1971 and spent the decade making cult B-movies like Steel Arena, Truck Stop Women, Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, Roller Boogie, and Class of 1984. Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, I've seen and dig. I believe I've seen Truck Stop Women when I was younger, Roller Boogie. Somehow that one slipped past me. The 80s saw a brief move to studio projects for Lester, and that's where we got Firestarter, Commando, and Armed and Dangerous. 
which was a notorious <laughs> bomb. And that led him right back into doing B-movies like Showdown in Little Tokyo and Double Take. I love Showdown in Little Tokyo. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> it's a fucking blast. And for the last 15 years, he's been producing and occasionally directing direct-to-sci-fi channel crap monster movies like Pterodactyl and Poseidon Rex. Really? So the career arcs of this guy. I mean, well, what do you think happened there? Did he lose a bet or what? Looking at most of it, I mean, it's like Showdown Little Tokyo and Double Take are like two of 15 movies he made during the 90s. And almost all of them are just very generically titled direct-to-video action movies. Yeah. And then, of course, when the whole Sci-Fi Channel monster boom happened, let's go the Jim Wynorski route. Let's hop on that train. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I didn't know he was doing that. I like him as a guy. I've seen a, a number of interviews with him, and he's really enthusiastic, and you can tell that he loves the genre. Mm -hmm. To be perfectly blunt and harshly honest about it, his love for the genre is to many degrees greater than his talent, yeah. I think, as a director. I don't think he's incompetent or abysmal no. in any way. It's just you would never say that's a director who's just flying with vision. He's not. I think he's not incomparable to... I hate to use this as an example because of just how much of a shit weasel he's been proven to be. But Brett Ratner. <laughs> I think much better person than Brett Ratner. Definitely. But, you know, in terms of like the ability, like Brett Ratner, I don't think is an incapable, untalented director, but he's uneven. Yeah, he's uninspired. But again, it's not like his films are all terrible and there are good moments within them. No, no, they're not. Some of them are enjoyable enough for what they are. Some of them are complete shit. And when he wants to, he can do a reasonable facsimile of someone else's style. Just to wrap this bit up, two little factoids here. I have Mark Lester's page open in some of the other monster movies. He did Yeti, Curse of the Snow Demon, <laughs> Sand Sharks, oh, yeah. Dragon Wasps, sure, and Dragons of Camelot. Fuck yeah. Where else you want to see dragons? Exactly. Camelot, man. And like some of his other 90s fare was like White Rush starring Judd Nelson. Really? Which I'm guessing is about when Stephen King was making Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> Or a uh, prequel to The Big Lebowski. Yeah. And then one little other tidbit, Armed and Dangerous, which he directed, previously had John Carpenter attached as a director. You are shitting me. Nope. Are you serious? That was when it was going to be uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Okay. Because that was a project that was in production hell for a long time. Damn. Yeah. I've seen that exactly one time. I know that a lot of people in my age group who saw it when we were anywhere between 8 and 16 have a certain fondness for it. I remember renting it on video with my next door neighbor and we couldn't finish it. And we were like maybe 12. Yeah. It seems like it's one of those things that it was stuck in production hell for so long that it just boiled over into some other thing than whatever it used to be. Oh, I did want to say, in Mark L. Lester's favor, I fucking love, love Class of 84. See, I've never seen Class of 84. That is one of the meanest, <laughs> grimiest. I'm not going to say it's one of the sleaziest, but it's pretty sleazy and it's pretty antisocial. And by the time it's over, it's just gone full on grand guignol, operatic in the way it executes its big set pieces and the death of the final villain is so over the top. And it's a crazy, crazy, mean, nasty little movie. It's a lot of fun. I dig it. And by the way, just to make you weep, two other studio movies that John Carpenter almost directed, Thelma and Louise <sighs> and Tombstone. What? John Carpenter almost directed Tombstone. <sighs> What could have been, Noel? Why you do this to me? The things we could have had. <laughs> Sadly, I don't like have like different versions of the scripts for those, so we're not doing episodes on them. 
One last little production nugget. The ultimate script that was used for the film, because they ended up throwing out the Lancaster and Phillips draft. The finished film was written by Stanley Mann, who was a veteran TV writer of the 50s and 60s, who then moved into films and wrote stuff like The Naked Runner, Damien Omen 2, Circle of Iron, Meteor, and Conan, The Destroyer. Yeah, he also did Eye of the Needle. Yes. What a great movie. Back to fire, back to fire, sir. Back to fire. Back off, back off. (laughs) (laughs) Back off. Let's steer this back at the pool of water. So, do you recommend the movie? Oh, this is a little more dicey. Overall, yeah, I think it's fine. I think some of it is pretty cool. I would definitely not put it in the top tier of King adaptations. I don't even know if I'd put it second tier. If I'm grading it, it's probably hanging out around a B minus, C plus. There's a lot I do like about it, or at least set pieces or moments or certain performances. I think Drew, by and large, is really good at what they ask her to do. She is a little girl. You have to take that into consideration. Sheen is fine, if definitely more perfunctory mm-hmm. than the character cap is in the novel. This is more streamlined and a little bit more condensed, you know, the faceless head of the corporation. But he's fine. I like Art Carney and Louise Fletcher a lot. I think David Keith is likable, even if he does overdo it a little bit. I understand the whole notion of why they did what they did in terms of visualizing that you want to see that their power is going on. As a movie, there's not a whole lot that is going on that's subtle. No. You know, I think it was Stephen King who talked about the invisible hair dryer that was just out of frame that suddenly would blow her hair back. You know, you could have done something as simple as a little optical on her eyes or some shit. But no, it's the 80s, so let's just fucking have this invisible wind. And Keith really pushing that hand to the temple thing really hard and the nosebleeds that weren't in the original novel to visualize the toll it's taking on Andy and all that shit. I get it, but it's a little much at times. It's about as subtle as a dinosaur stomping through your house. I'm kind of on the fence about it, too. When the film needs to be unsubtle, it's wonderful. Yeah. Whenever she goes on her blazes, it's like watching a canon movie. It's just going all out, over the top, flaming bodies flying left and right. Literal balls of fire. The problem is, is that Lester can't really shut off that. And so he's not good at the quiet moments. Mm. And so sometimes they come off awkward. They come off a little overly staged and clumsy. For the most part, I don't mind how they condense the story. This is a pretty good, straightforward adaptation of the book. It's a abridged version of the book, but they didn't really change much. They changed a few little things here and there, but for the most part, it's been cut down a little bit, but this is still the story of the book. It is remarkably faithful to the book. Yeah. Like you said, there's little tiny things they change here and there, but for the very most part, it's one of the situations where, no, not everything in the book is in the movie, but everything that's in the movie is in the book. For the very most part, like I'd say like 95 to 96 percent, it is really, really faithful to the book. It just needed a bit more polish. It needed a bit more nuance. The cast, it's not so much that I think anyone is really miscast. I do. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, yeah, we'll get to well, yeah. yeah, we didn't talk. I didn't mention him yet. <laughs> oh, Rainbow is going to be a whole conversation unto himself. No, I agree with that. But I don't think anyone is unfitting of the characters, but I don't think the way the scenes are blocked and laid out always allow them to work. He's not a director who can work a scene with the actors and make it work. 
he's a director who is a little blunt and it's like, here's the scene we need, go for it. Eh, it was good enough. You know, that kind of a director. Mm-hmm. There's scenes when this movie works, it's great. And then there's so many scenes where it's like, you know, if you had done two close-ups instead of a wide shot, this would sell better. If you had them facing this way, it'd be a little better. If you broke up that line, it'd be a little better. It's a movie that you can very easily nitpick because it kind of invites it Yeah, by doing all these little things. There's a lot of ways it could have flowed better. And like you said, him not having the skill at more nuanced moments, even when those moments are pretty much lifted damn near verbatim from the novel. They don't play as well as they do when you're reading it and you're making your own mind movie as what he put on the screen because it doesn't flow that way. It doesn't have rhythm. It doesn't have the shots right. Or like you said, it's not blocked right. Or the actors aren't haven't been directed to do it in a more involving, realistic, absorbing sort of way and be kind of flat or it can kind of feel jerky just off, just out of rhythm. I definitely think that's true. I don't think he's a bad director, but he's a director for a very specific type of movie. And again, like Class in 1984, Commando, mm-hmm. those are very over-the-top, kind of in-your-face type movies. This is a film that needs to have a more grounded hand. And you can see he's trying to. He's trying to do a more grounded hand with like all the scenes between the father and the daughter and on the Manders farm. And there's times when he pulls it off, but there's times where it just he doesn't quite get it. Which is a shame because knowing that Carpenter had been originally attached to it, Carpenter's movie that came out in 84, Starman, was able to do those against moments. Oh yeah, the whole road chase, the government coming after you. Beautiful movie. Yeah, and when it would slow down to be about relationships or emotional connections between these two people, you bought it. Yeah. Because Carpenter has an artistry there and is not just about bludgeoning the audience with horror or spectacle. Not to take away, like you said, what Lester is good at, those two major set pieces in the movie, the first one at the Manders Farm Mm -hmm. and the last one at the shop compound, are fucking awesome. I mean, even the bits where they're just doing the tests on her. Those are pretty cool, too, for sure. Yeah. And especially being able to watch a movie done in the early 80s where it's all practical. They clearly got a great stunt team together. Dick Warlock plays one of the guys Mm -hmm. going up to the Manders farm. As soon as I saw him, I was like, yeah. Hey, they interviewed him on the Blu-ray, too. Really? That's awesome. I'd love to see that. Those practical effects and the real firework that they did, all of those pyrotechnics, They're shot pretty awesomely. They are executed pretty awesome. It's just a whole bunch of awesome. I was completely into the movie during those scenes. And that's where I'm also a little hesitant to credit Lester because even by his own admission, he basically just stepped back and let the stunt team put those together to the point where the stunt (laughs) coordinator is also the second unit director of the movie. To their credit, apparently nobody was injured on this movie at all. Which is insane. (laughs) Everything was so perfectly coordinated. They took their time. De Laurentiis wasn't breathing down their necks. Make sure they did it right. And everything pulled off perfectly. And they even had a bit where it's like Dick Warlock was doing a full body burn and realized he had stepped out of the fire, turned around and walked right back into it. (laughs) And they were like, oh my God, that's even better. (laughs) Dick Warlock is a fucking champion. He plays hard. And to be fair, that is also credit to a good director of building a team of people who you trust to just kind of step back and let them do what they need to do. Oh, yeah. A great director is a superb general, if we're going to talk about it in military terms. And Mm -hmm. you pick your sergeants very carefully. Even to kind of bring the Carpenter connection back, we've always kind of seen that where Carpenter had one of the best teams around him. Then you get to the 90s where that team has gone away. And you can really see what it's like when you're no longer commanding one of the best teams around. 
Like, I mean, could you imagine this film, John Carpenter, Dean Cundy doing the cinematography, Ugh. Carpenter doing the score. <laughs> Why are you make me cry, you know? <laughs> Maybe get Tommy Lee Wallace doing oh. editing in second unit. Oh, man. We haven't even gotten to the Carpenter script yet. If he had even just had this script, imagine the film he could have made from it. I bet if he'd had his crew with this script and this cast just handed to him, I'm thinking a four out of five movie pretty easily. And even without Cundy, Cundy went off to work with Zemeckis and Carpenter for his next movie is Christine and Starman brought back the cinematographer he did Elvis with. Morgan, right? Don Morgan? I think so. And those two movies are still gorgeous. Yeah. Carpenter had a really, really good sense of getting a great cinematographer until he got the guy that he made his entire last decade with. I don't think Kibbe is awful. I don't think Kibbe is on the same level as the other people he was working with, though. So anyway, he's kind of steering us back, though. I don't mind the hair blowing. I just mind that it's staged poorly so you can see visibly when they turn the fan on and she's blinking because the air just hit her eyes. Because even in the books, it does mention her hair starts blowing around because the temperature change in the room is causing, you know, air currents to swirl. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it seemed much more subtle. Whereas in the movie, it's, you know, you could be standing fucking 50 yards away and like, oh shit, something's going on with that kid. I could imagine like she's fine, but then as one of those fireballs takes off, there's this whoosh of air, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's just a lot better ways to go about a lot of the things that they did. I do dig, of course, that it's very faithful to the novel. The climax and the scenes, I like some of the moments with the actors. I do like David Keith and Drew Barrymore together. I don't hate David Keith. No. Do I wish there had been a stronger actor? Sure. But I think he's fine. Yeah, I like David Keith, too. I think the thing is, I don't think he's as strong of a leading man as he could be. But the thing about this is, he's not really the leading man. He's the person ushering in the lead of the story, and that's Charlie. True. And I still think he has a good intensity, which the role needs. But again, it's just the staging of, instead of like his powers increasingly messing with his head, it's like, go all in right up front. Yeah. Him gradually building to a point where you can see him starting to tense up and having to grab the temples. That I fully understand as he's using the power, but to go instantly to that every single time, even when in the movie, he does actually give himself the push in the bathroom mirror, but it doesn't really register that that's what he's doing. No, it definitely helps if you read the book that you understand that that's the movie version of that whole sequence. Yeah. I like David Keith. I think he's good enough in the movie. I definitely think he's likable. I definitely think he makes you root for him or at least not want bad things to happen to him. I do really like the moment where he finds Vicky because he completely loses his shit. Oh, God, yeah. I think that's really effective. That's the best thing about David Keith is he's very sincere. That's one of the reasons why I find him so likable, because you really believe that he means this shit. And the desperation. And even that bit where, Mm -hmm. you know, Charlie gets the dart to the neck and he's like, who shot my daughter? You know? Yeah. That's a really good moment. You know what I noticed this viewing? If you close your eyes when you watch Firestarter, David Keith sounds remarkably like a young Patrick Swayze in certain line deliveries. Because David Keith has a bit of an accent. I think he's from Tennessee. That kind of tight-lipped, quiet drawl, yeah. Also, George C. Scott sounded like somebody that I could not figure out who it was. It was driving me batty. And it was so blatant. And it was maybe a half an hour left to go in the movie. And I finally got it. I was like, Jesus Christ. George C. Scott sounds like Lance Hendrickson. Mm, 
I hear it now. Yes. When he would really get that voice kind of low. Yeah. And kind of talk like that. And the thing about Scott is so many of the performances that I know him for are where he's very kind of barking and loud and shouting and a little animated. Mm -hmm. Having him so understated here. And yeah, and then now hearing Lance Hendrickson in that voice, it's like, oh, wow. It's so not what you're used to with Scott. No. But before we go further down the Scott hole. That does not sound anybody. That's a place to visit. Really? We really do need to talk about Drew Barrymore first. I liked Drew as a kid, like most kids my age. I am just a few months younger than her. Obviously, she's been my age my whole life. Yeah. So I could relate to a fellow kid. E.T., Gertie Rules. Growing up with her is one thing. Going back and looking at these older performances with a degree of remove and distance is interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think she's definitely very likable, very appealing, very sympathetic. But, of course, there's going to be some limitations. Not every kid is as talented as someone as, say, like Haley Joel Osment was when he was young, who was on fire from the get. And some of her line readings are a bit stilted and not completely great. But there's other stuff where you really do believe that she understands what's going on. You buy that she is playing this character and that the character she's playing means what she's saying and that she's smart and she's resourceful. I like her a lot. I think she's great. Yeah. And again, judging her as a child actress, when you see a kid that is turning in a performance of that level at that age, you have to kind of admire it or at least give it the respect it deserves. And I think she's great. For me, the fact that there's an inconsistency to it ties to the fact that there's an inconsistency with all the actors. And again, that's where I kind of bring it back to Mark Lester. Mm -hmm. I think there's times when she's really authentic and she's really giving some good performances. I actually really like how she deals with her powers and the feelings that come with the powers and how it can overwhelm and scare her and how she can fight it back. I like it when she gets angry. Mm -hmm. There's times when it's really good. But again, the times when it's not, again, are she has limitations, but so do most actors. And again, that's where it comes down to the director working the material with the actors. How are they directed? Yeah. And not only that, but even just reworking the lines. That's the thing about, like, say, Keanu Reeves, is it's not that he's a bad actor. It's he's an actor who just doesn't fit certain types of material. And it's a question of can you rework the material? If not, then he's not the right choice for it. Yeah. And with her, I think it's less that she's not the right choice for it, but the material could have continued to be tweaked. She's struggling with this line reading, reword the line, restage the moment, you yeah. know? That, I think, is the level of direction that we're not getting. You have to meet her strengths halfway, at least. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think even something like, which I'm sure a lot of people probably laugh at and or think is cheesy to a degree, and it certainly is, but that whole thing she does when she's trying to control it, back off, back yeah. off. I like that because that's yeah. very much something a kid would do. I believe in the reality of that, yeah. that this little girl who has this power, who is trying to control it, would speak to it on a very certain and very specific level and would say it that way, back off. Just back off. And she's trying to will mm -hmm. it into following her commands. Yeah. And it's happening amidst us actually seeing what this power is capable of. So mm -hmm. knowing that she's struggling to control it, I think it really fits the scene, fits the moment. Completely. I really like that. It's a bit bigger than perhaps some people might do it, but I think it works really well for expressing what the story is trying to get across as that character moment of, like you said, her using it to possibly it getting out of her control and getting away from her to reining it back in and throwing it at the water. And that's what I like is instead of like, you know, her just going stone face or her eyes lighting up. Giving it stink eye. Yeah, or yeah. even doing the Carrie thing where Carrie just became an alien. 
the whole completely covered in blood, the poses, the eyes. She just became this unhuman thing. What I like is that even in the final confrontation, when she's blowing up and killing people, you still have these moments of reaction. Like between the bursts, you can see her catching her breath. She's sweaty. She's literally just, why? And then it's like, and then another wave of agents comes up and it's just kind of like, will they just stop coming? (laughs) You know, and even after she lets them all go, now there's a guy coming up with a machine gun. I like that she's actually got the bulletproof shield too, but <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I like that you get the moment where she melts the bullet in midair. That was enough to sell what she's doing later on. But even then she like kills everyone and now there's a helicopter coming and it's like, just stop. Just let me stop. Yeah. I don't want to keep doing this. Why do you keep making me do this? It's still a little clunkily played, but I like where it's coming from. Definitely. You said the way that she stops and catches her breath and is sweating a little bit, not because of the heat. You get the sense that the heat that's coming out of her isn't something that affects her externally. It's a little bit of fear, anxiety, being worked up. The whole situation is a bit overwhelming. Yeah. The way that they allow her to have a moment is so fantastic because it doesn't let you forget she's just a little girl, man. Yeah. And again, the whole Stephen King that this is coming from, you have to give a shit about the horrible things that are happening to the people in the story Mm -hmm. and how they're coming out of the people in this specific instance. And giving it that brief respite of her (sighs) catching her breath or you see it's taken a little bit out of her and she's a little scared, she's a little freaked and sometimes stuff blows up and you can see her jerk a little bit involuntarily, even though she understands what's going to happen when it actually does happen. She's just a little girl and it's still going to be like, holy shit, that's pretty big. I think Drew did great there too. Yeah. And again, where so much of this boils down to Mark. And again, it's like, again, I don't want to pin it all on him because he was assigned this by De Laurentiis and Universal. I just don't think he was the right person ultimately to put in Carpenter's place, basically. I would have to agree. He's limited as a director. Yeah. That's just what it is. I'm not saying it because I don't like the guy or because I have something out for him. I do like him, especially as a person. But if we're talking about his talent as a director, it's not even a contest. They're not even playing the same fucking game. There's a reason why he's been making direct-to-video monster movies for the last 15 years. (laughs) Exactly. John can do the horror. He can do the suspense. He can do the action. He can do the humor. He can do the bonding. He can do the teenage girls walking around. He can do the romance of people on a road trip. He can do all these different kinds of styles. Even though he kind of got pegged, he has a range to the ability of what he can do. If he had gotten opportunities to do more wide-reaching material, he could have pulled it off. He's just a great filmmaker. If Thing and Starman had been successful, John Carpenter's entire career would be different. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. Whereas I think someone like Lester, when they step outside or when they're asked to do something different, their limitations become glaring. It's glaringly evident what Lester is good and isn't good at, and you realize what they should not be asking him to provide. And he probably wants to. He wants to do it well. I don't think it's like he just doesn't have any desire in doing certain things, so he's not even really going to chase that. Lester tried to do quieter moments and isn't as good at them. You know, they didn't play. They just didn't play. That's just not his thing, even though he's trying. Yeah, he wants to be able to do that. He has nothing but the best intentions. He's not half-assing it. He's not like... Yeah, I don't really care about this shit. I really want to get back to the part when the little girl turns this fucker into a Roman candle. Let's do that. That's not it. You get that he understands it's important to the story. It's something that's going to be necessary if you're going to care about these people. So he knows how important it is. He's just not good enough to pull it off the way it should be pulled off. So speaking of, so John Rainbird. (laughs) So what did you think about George C. Scott's John Rainbird? (laughs) 
Yeah, he's uh, he's miscast. Yeah, I think he's not terrible. He's not laughable. He does not give you the sense that he is incompetent. He's a professional. He's a man of talent. He is not right for that part. No. I think he tries his best. I think he decided what he was going to do with it. He was going to be this very stoic, very scary kind of guy. He was going to take it very seriously. And he's a killer, like the baddest killer. I think he's good with Drew. I believed that he was a killer. I did not buy that he was John Greenberg. Yes. And that's a very important distinction in terms of character. I think part of it is they so minimize the obsession with why he's fascinated with death. Yeah. And the performance, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think he's fine. I think he's good in a few moments. It's not even that he misstepped and was in the midst of an alcohol breakdown at that particular point in his career and just couldn't bring it. No, you can tell. He's trying. He's got an idea for what he wants to do with the character or what Lester has told him he wants him to do and what you see is what he came out with, but it's just not... It doesn't work. It feels more generic. I mean, the thing about him in the books, they very much use the height in terms of he's not only physically looming above everyone, but thematically he is looming above the entire remainder of the story, above Charlie, above the shop, above Cap. He is literally overwhelming everything else around him. Not so much under his thrall, but under his shadow. He's the mountain. George C. Scott, they're trying. They're trying to get it. You know, they still have all the dialogue. They still have all the machinations. But he's not selling it. Not the Rainbird way, no. And to be fair, the red face portrayal is not helping either. (laughs) No. No. I'm going to go ahead and you're going to have to forgive me. Anybody who's listening to this is going to have to forgive me. But I was a teenager. And as we all know, teenagers are fucking stupid. Yeah. It was around the time he was just becoming famous. He had made maybe three movies when I reread Firestarter for the second time. And there was a very short period of time, maybe two months, that the madness overtook me. And I was convinced that Firestarter needed to be remade. And the guy they needed to play, John Rainbird, was none other than Steven Seagal. (laughs) Yeah, I was like 15 or 16 at the time, and I was convinced. They might have had to cut some of his dialogue, but he could sell it. I have since come to my senses. (laughs) It was only a couple months, and then I was like, wait, what? 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 No. No. (laughs) You know, he couldn't do that shit. He's not a good enough actor. I mean, obviously, you have an Oscar-winning actor in that part, and the part still defeated them. You're going to put Steven Seagal in a part that George C. Scott couldn't make work? Yeah. No! Because, I mean, it'd be like all the character would be there on the page, but he would just be graveling it out in his typical Steven Seagal way, you know? He would just be very serious and very There wouldn't be anything to the actual performance beyond him being Steven Seagal. Yeah, no, no, completely. I was stupid, Noel. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> Not to just jump on the obvious route, but it's like, even looking at the time period, they were not hugely prominent actors, but they were acting, they had some success, they were Native American, and they had at least the physical imposition of the character. We already had Will Sampson and Sonny Landham at the time, who were still working as actors. Yeah. If it hadn't have been for the flop that was the legend of the Lone Ranger, Michael Horse, too. Ooh, yeah, definitely. He was not a bad actor. Yeah. If you wanted to cast actual authentic Native American actors, they were available. Why not cast one? <laughs> this could have been such a great role for either of them because it's such a character piece. Mm-hmm. And it's not built around them just being, you know, the stereotypical stoic Native American. It's a character piece. It's a really juicy, meaty character piece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I was saying earlier, it's not hammering home stereotypes. And Rainbird does not walk into a room and how what? None of that no. bullshit. It's a character. It's a real character. Part of the character is that he's Native American. Okay, cool. 
But that's it. It's just a facet of him. The, the important shit about him doesn't have anything to do with him being Native American. The important shit is he scares everyone, he outmaneuvers everyone, <laughs> and he bonds with Charlie. He's a liar and a killer. You know what you could even do? You could repurpose the shoes by just have it be in every scene he's in. He's got really, really awesome shoes, and they're different in every scene. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. And that's ultimately what gives him away as not being able to be a convincing orderly. You got some fancy shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting angle. <laughs> but John, how can you afford kick-ass Air Jordans on your orderly salary? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Imagine John Rainbird having to buy shoes from, you know, that one 12-year-old kid who's a millionaire off of selling shoes out of his car. <laughs> One day, that kid is going to wake up and find the slamming palm of Rainbird in his nose. Yeah. So I'm saying, I don't know if that kid's going to make it to old age. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just the appearance, the characterization. George C. Scott just is so out of place in this role. Yeah, he's just not right for it. Yeah. I can't really complain about anybody else. Like I said, no. they changed the character of Cap a bit. Obviously, he's younger. No, there's a reason for that, too. That was because Burt Lancaster was in the role and had to suddenly leave the picture because of heart surgery. Oh. So Martin Sheen was kind of a last-minute replacement and literally was just because he had just done Dead Zone with Dino De Laurentiis. Ah, okay. Makes sense. And so that was originally going to be Burt Lancaster, who very much resembles the character from the book. Yeah, he would have been great, actually. Even though his role is, is from the book and whatnot, and it's more perfunctory, but I don't have a problem with Machine. They only ask him to do so much. He does what they ask him to do because he's fucking Martin Sheen, yeah. and that's it. I like everyone in the movie, except for George C. Scott. And yeah. again, I don't think he's awful. I just don't think he's right. No, he was miscast, and I don't think they figured out how to do that character. No. My biggest problem with the movie is a bit of the unevenness of it, especially considering from the bigger boo moments to the quieter, more character-driven moments. I feel bad because, like I said, I do like Lester, but I'm going to lay that at his feet. And George C. Scott, those are my big problems with the movie. The things I like, I love the Tangerine Dream score, even though yeah. that can be kind of obtrusive, but that's very much a hallmark of the time. That was the 80s. The Tangerine Dream score, I think it's a lovely score. I think it's a little too easy listening at times during some of the quieter moments. Yes. But during the suspense scenes, it actually sounds like what we would have probably gotten from John. From Carpenter, yeah. I was thinking that... It's got that pulse to it. That sonic pulse. Dunk, dunk. Yeah, it's like heartbeat. And I like even how they were the ones who did the audio effect for like when he's doing the pushing. I actually did like that sound. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. So I, I like the score. I like all of the other actors. I like the pyrotechnics. So, I mean, if I'm going to say a yay or a nay, I'm going to give it the yay. Yeah. Because I think it's better than it's not. I like it more than I do not. I definitely don't not recommend it. Like, if you can only choose good or bad, I'm going to say good. But, of course, if you let me talk a little bit more of it, I'm going to add a little caveat. Yeah. <laughs> But as a whole, I find it successful. Again, I don't think it's great. I don't think it's a wonderful sci-fi no. horror movie, paranoid thriller pursuit, and then turn the table on your captors type deal. Do I think it's enjoyable enough to sit down and spend an hour and 45 minutes checking it out? Sure. Yeah. Definitely. And as we said, it's a pretty fair and faithful adaptation of the book. You know, you want to sell someone, what's the book? Watch the movie. It's actually pretty much mostly there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little clumsier around the edges, but all the important stuff is there. Exactly. The things you need for it to be that story are all in the movie. The stuff they change is mostly cosmetic. You know who we didn't bring up, though? Art Carney and Louise Fletcher. 
they were the characters exactly as we discussed on the page. Yeah, they did what they were asked to do. They were likable. You believed them. Art Carney was that salt of the earth, no bullshit kind of guy who just took everything in, made his own little assessment of it, and then went to find out when he felt he could. And, you know, yeah, I thought he was great. And Louise Fletcher was likable. <laughs> Which I've seen her in many roles. Which she is only so often is. <laughs> Go watch Brainstorm. She's really charming in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not all Nurse Ratchet and Eaton frogs. <laughs> While I appreciate that they kept the ending where she returns to the farm and to them and they take her to the press, it almost breezes by so fast. I almost wish they had just ended it with Charlie going down the road. You know, she's just destroyed this entire thing. Cue the lonely man theme. She walks off at the end. And that's all you really need is to leave that open ending. And I'm surprised that until Firestarter Rekindled, we never got a sequel to this. Yeah. Because this feels like something where you could keep building Charlie's journey and still being pursued. You know, her as a teenager, her as an adult. Definitely. I could have seen this getting more. They could have gone a lot in different directions with it. Like we very briefly discussed, I don't really have much to say about the sequel because I very vaguely remember it. I watched it when it aired on Sci-Fi. When it's not even a sequel, it's a reboot too. So. Well, yeah, but... They yeah. rewrite the entire backstory. Yeah, I read your piece on it and how he dies differently and it was fine. It was okay. It did not keep my attention. So I watched maybe a half an hour of it and then went on and lived my life. It's like they were going to do a TV series because Dead Zone was successful and it was a good show. And that ultimately morphed into the rekindled miniseries. And then at one point they were going to do a TV series just called The Shop, where it was going to be all about The Shop because they've been in multiple <laughs> Stephen King works. I would love to see that. That would be interesting. I'm hoping that they play a part in the new Castle Rock series. That would be nice. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be so fucking cool. I remember they were the bad guys in Golden Years. Oh, yeah. And Golden Years had their attempt at a very John Rainbird-like character as the man who's twisting and turning everyone and manipulating everyone. Again, not very successfully done. <laughs> Golden Years is a real mess of a show. Yeah, I haven't seen that since it was new, and there's definitely stuff I liked. And now, did you hear who signed on to write and direct a remake of Firestarter? I have not. Lay it on me. Akiva Goldsman. Fuck you! Ah, sorry. <laughs> that was a very honest reaction. Not to you, the universe. Yeah. Are you kidding me? No. Akifa Goldsman. Man, why can't we have nice business? He's not only writing it, he's directing it. <sighs> to be fair, I actually like him as a director. He's actually done some good directing in television. But as a writer, oh boy. The only things of his I've ever liked are from television. I like the work he did on Fringe. That's it. It's literally it. The style and tone of Fringe is a perfect fit for Firestarter. <sighs> But don't let him write it. <sighs> Do not let him write it. <sighs> Please don't let him write it. Winter's Tale sucks so bad. No, yeah. I could go on a rant about that, but we're not. <laughs> but basically, fuck Akiva Goldsman in his fucking ear. And that's why AJ is going to be joining me for the new podcast series, Fool's Goldsman. No. <laughs> I demand payment for that. And a disclaimer at the beginning of every episode where it's explained, this is going to be a... A chair may fly out of your headphones at any point. Exactly. This <laughs> is going to be a thoughtful gentleman who's trying to keep this other crazy frothing maniac on track. And from running out into the night to murder innocent bystanders from his pure seething rage that Akiva Goldsman has infected him with. I don't know him. I don't know. He, he's probably a lovely guy. I don't hold anything against him personally as a person. As an artist, I hold a shitload of things against him because I think he sucks. That's your old sitcom bumper. That's Akiva. <laughs> 
And it's like him just turning no. away from a typewriter with a big grin on his face. Yeah, and then just from off screen, AJ fucking hurls a fucking football right in his temple. That's his Stephen J. Cannell bumper. Big thumbs up, cheesy, fucking shit-eating grin. Bam! Football to the dome. So anyways, Firestarter. So, I mean, there's still a future out there for Firestarter. I would love to see more of Charlie McGee. I mean, one thing I liked about Rekindled was the idea of other children with powers. There's almost this collective out there of some are good, some are bad, some are owned by the shop, some are on the run. There's interesting stuff you could do there. Other stuff have done this before, but you could still do fun stuff with it. Yeah, the Lot 6 trials did not end. There was Lot 7. There was Lot 8. I want there to be more fire. I want there to be more Charlie McGee. I'm kind of almost surprised that King never brought back Charlie McGee because she's a character you could so easily pick up on like 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. Definitely. My thing is that, you know, so many stories, they still have a natural end. We finally reached that point. Even if the character's still going on, we've reached the end of that story. Mm-hmm. Charlie McGee, even just looking at the book, it feels like there's still more stories to tell. I would be cool with more stories with Charlie, and I think it would be good to do like a Dr. Sleep type issue. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be as different a story as Dr. Sleep. Well, I mean, but even she went to the press, she became public. What would it be in a world where a public celebrity is a fire starter? It would be something. What if she went on the road and that's how she makes a living is, <laughs> you know, helping firemen test out insulation, doing public displays. There's interesting things. And always the shop is just kind of lurking like we can't do anything because she's always on camera. A Charlie McGee reality series. Seriously. <laughs> okay. The only way she can live her life is by living it on camera constantly. And it's like people start to stray away and lose attention. Boom. Here's something that'll make him talk for a while. She almost becomes cynical. I could see something like that. That would just be a fascinatingly different way to take the character instead of just constantly doing the fugitive on the run. We did end with her going to the press. Well, what happens now that everyone knows who she is and what she can do? Yeah, it's going to be public. And you could even do a meta commentary on Drew Barrymore growing up in the spotlight and all the troubled hell that that was. Charlie McGee is now public attention. That would be interesting. There's a lot of angles you could take. I think that would be something worth exploring to see if you could make it work. And even just, you know, taking the basic setup and doing a TV series like they were going to, or even if they do include the shop in Castle Rock, will they also include Lot 6? That's a good question. That's what I'm going to be curious is, to what degree are they actually going to have the original stories, and to what degree are they going to cross them over? Well, yeah, what elements will they take and what are they going to play with? Yeah. What's going to be their jumping off points? I think that's going to be a lot of fun to find out. On a final note as we end this, on the next segment when we pick up, we're going to move into the John Carpenter scripts. Yes. So what do you think of John? I know we kind of got a bit of a discussion, but do you like John? Was this a good period for John? I love John. He's my favorite filmmaker of all time. This was in the middle of, even though his movies were not commercially successful or critically acclaimed, I don't think you can fuck with his movies between Assault on Precinct 13 and The end point is different from person to person, but most of us can agree that at least through They Live, he was pretty much on fire. It's a pretty much unimpeachable run. Oh, yeah. I think he is right in the middle of his highest peak. I love this whole run of movies, but I think his highest peak was The Thing and Starman. I would say The Thing, Starman, and Big Trouble. I'm not talking about peak in terms of these are the best movies he made, but these are the ones that had the potential to thrust him into the mainstream. For sure. Big Trouble in China is not a movie that's going to thrust you in the mainstream. Starman is. Oh, yeah. John had the opportunity. He could have gone a completely different route as a director. Had that one movie been a success? 
even had Thing been a success, but it's still very much playing to the types of movies he was known for. Starman is so different and so well made that had that been a financial success to match the critical success that it was, the entire second half of John Carpenter's career would cease to exist and it would be an entirely different career. There's that great story about how he was having dinner and Guillermo del Toro was with him and Guillermo was like, you understand, man, like the thing, like it's perfect. It's the perfect horror movie and everybody loves it so much and it's going to live forever and it's going to go down in history and it's a masterpiece. And John was more or less like, well, how the fuck does that help me? How did that help me? Yeah. You know, like, that's great. The work is going to survive and it's going to live. The reason why I bring up the what is scenario here is because the whole what is scenario presented by this one thing is such a part of how he got the shaft and a part of how everything went the way it did. And that's what's also part of the fascinating character study of Carpenter is the 80s. Again, why I think this is his peak is because it affected him. Losing those opportunities, losing the success that he should have had, losing the team that he had built, so much of the reason why there was the downward slope is because that really did hurt him. Yeah. Those aren't bad because he became a bad filmmaker. They became bad because it broke his heart and his heart just wasn't in it as much anymore. It did break his heart. So anyways, we're going to just cut things here and we'll be back either after the break or in a part two that has yet to be determined. (laughs) We're going to start looking at the two John Carpenter drafts. The first one is going to be by Bill Lancaster. And for those who don't remember, Bill Lancaster wrote The Thing, Bad News Bears, sadly passed away, I think, in his 50s. He didn't write too many things, but this, again, coming right off of The Thing, him and John Carpenter. AJ, you looking forward to it? I'm very much looking forward. I can't wait to read it. We'll go ahead and just end it here and, and we'll be back. See ya. Masters of Carpentry can be found at mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com and is in no way affiliated with John Carpenter or the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. Our theme music is Black Rainbow by Jack Locke. To hear more, please visit jacklocke.com. That's J-A-K-L-O-C-K-E.com. I can understand how some people might... Oh, shit, what was that? A clock just fell off the wall. I think you're going to have to edit that. Um, <laughs> uh, I can see definitely... It's your time, how... AJ. It's your time. Don't tell me this is like a portent of bad things to come, no. That's what this entire recording has been setting up, your last words. No. <laughs> you're going to be really upset if I die in my sleep tonight, so don't do that shit. <laughs> I am going to be, yeah, I am. I will regret that. Absolutely. Or maybe you're not. Maybe that was your plan along, you evil bastard. I've been Rainbird the entire time. No. Don't Rainbird me. I like my nose the way it is. It's already crooked from a fight, man. I don't need it to get more crooked.